0: Good morning. Please join me in turning in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 28. We come to a chapter in the Old Testament that twice asks the question where can I find wisdom? Where is its place? Where is wisdom to be found? I wonder how many times you found yourself in the last week to be in need of wisdom. Being a time where you perceived that you were lacking in wisdom. I'm sure it's true of every one of us that we uh, had many instances like that in this past week. Where we said to ourselves, I wish I, uh, I, wish I could see this more clearly. I wish I knew what, uh, what the right step is here. I'm just not sure I'm thinking about this accurately. Sometimes those questions come up in insignificant areas. And uh, areas with, with little consequence. Uh, but often, though, they represent very deep and consequential areas of our lives, which is what makes them all the more uh, anxiety-producing. And we're thankful in those times that the Bible is a book that asks and answers the question, where is wisdom? And we're especially going to look at verses 12 through 28 this morning to see this question answered. But as we do this, what we're going to find is that Scripture is going to begin to shift our thinking off of ourselves and onto our God as we consider the question and the answer to this. And along the way, it's going to put some hard questions to us about God, questions that we have to wrestle with and questions that lead us to wisdom. Before we stand together and read, beginning in verse 12, I want to take just a moment for us to see what he's doing in the first 11 Verses of this chapter. So, Job chapter 28, in the first 11 verses, what we see him doing is charting out some of man's most impressive accomplishments. Uh, In the first eight verses, we see him describe, for example, advances in mining uh, and the ability to uncover different gems and stones. So, he gives us pictures, like verse 4, the picture of men opening up deep shafts underground and lowering themselves down on ropes. To find these things. The picture in verses 7 and 8. Going to places that no land dwelling creature has ever gone before. Um, Advances in mining. We also see in verses 9 through 11. Advances in architecture. And engineering. Uprooting mountains. And redirecting the paths of waters. Doing these, these amazing things. In terms of human achievement. And all of that. Uh, Leading up to the question you see in verse 12, where shall wisdom be found? It seems especially applicable to us, I think, in the 21st century to see these first 11 verses laying out our accomplishments right before Job asks the question, but where is wisdom found? Would you agree that much of the last several centuries has involved a great deal of optimism because of human achievement? Right? even in the 20th century, uh, a great deal of optimism. Uh, there were those couple of world wars in there in the midst that got us down for a while, but even after that, many held on to the expectation that things in the future are just going to continue getting better and better. And we live in a time today that, is, that has moved past that. We, we are even, some say, on the tail end of a postmodern sort of angst, that makes very clear why verse 12 is so relevant to us, even after all of the developments that we have seen uh, in in terms of human ingenuity. Uh, Study after study is making clear to us that our developed society today is less optimistic about the future. Our developed society today is less happy now, less confident Our advancements as great and wondrous as they uh, certainly are, they have not succeeded in finding us answers to our greatest questions. And so we still, and maybe more than ever, live with the sense that we are in utter need of a wisdom that this world doesn't contain. And that is the subject of our passage this morning. So with that in mind, would you stand with me as we begin in verse 12. I'll read verses 12 through 28. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, And concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say. We have heard a rumor of it. With our ears. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth. And sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight. And apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain. And a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it. And declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And be seated. And Father, we come before you now as a congregation asking you. We ask of you as the source of our wisdom. We see in these passages already the the very plain evidence that wisdom is not to be found if we do not look to you. By your grace, you've made us a people that are hungry for your ways. We are hungry to know you, to know who you are and how you have revealed yourself so that we might be conformed to that image. And God, we ask you, open our ears and our hearts now as we come under your word. And bless us as we study it. Guard us from error. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a moment to notice some some organizational matters in this passage. You've you've probably seen that uh, the question of verse 12 that we'll be starting with is repeated again in verse 20. So if you're looking over that entire passage there, hopefully your Bible has it all on one page and you don't have to turn the page to see it. But what we see there are two different sections. Verses 12 through 19 is its own section. And verses 21 through 22 is another section. And they're both making largely the same point using some different details. The point of verses 12 through 19 that he makes clear over and over again is we cannot purchase wisdom. It cannot be bought. It can't be bought, verse 15, with gold or silver Not even the gold of Ophir, verse 16. This is a a place that's mentioned at several places in the Old Testament um, in reference to the preciousness, the purity of their gold. Uh, So gold cannot buy wisdom. Not even if you get gold from Ophir can you purchase wisdom. It can't be bought with onyx or sapphire. Verse 18, it can't be bought with coral, crystal, or pearls. You can see he's just laying out all the different uh, stones and, uh, and things of value that we might use to buy this. And he's saying, it's not going to be purchased. Not even the topaz, the topaz of Ethiopia, in verse 19, is able to purchase wisdom. And the reason for that is given in verse 13. And this is an idea that's going to carry over into the second section of 20 through 22 as well. You see verse 13, the problem that we have is that wisdom is not found in the land of the living. Can't purchase something that's not there. We can't find it. Verses 20 through 22 continue with this idea. Uh, Where is wisdom to be found? Well, verse 21, it's concealed from the birds in the air. Verse 22, it's unknown in the land of the dead. In Sheol, Abaddon is another word for the land of the dead. So in other words, go as you will from top to bottom you're not going to be able to find wisdom. It doesn't matter where you travel. doesn't matter where you go. You're not going to find a location in which you can reach and say, Aha, here it is. Here is wisdom. Even that on its own gives us a, a principle to consider and to think about. Um, if, if I'm not able to find wisdom on this earth, if there is a situation I'm in here Uh, for which I'm lacking wisdom, and he's saying going there will not allow me to find it. Well, that says something to us about our circumstances as we're going through uh, this life. Wouldn't you agree then that in many instances a change in my circumstances is not necessarily going to produce the solution to the thing that's troubling me, is it? We had a family recently in this body who suffered tremendously from Um, from the allergies of the Texas Panhandle. Some of you know what I mean uh, by personal experience. And this for them was debilitating. And when they moved to another location, those particular problems went away. Some of those issues that we struggle with are circumstantial, right? But if I am someone who who is dealing with, for example, the matter of lust in my heart, moving to a state of, marriage, although the Bible commends us to do those sorts of of things, getting married won't suddenly solve that problem for me, will it? If I am someone who, no matter what the Lord has given me, I just cannot seem to be content with what God has provided. If that's a matter, if that's something that I am dealing with, um, that new job with the higher pay is not going to solve that problem. Have you found that to be true yet? That the matters of the heart that we struggle with so mightily, they are not matters that are solved as a result of a change in our circumstances. Because in those deeper situations, what we find is that we're actually lacking wisdom. And so change my circumstances as much as you want. It's not going to cure me from these manifestations of foolishness that come up in my life. Now, as we come to verse 23, we're going to begin to slow down quite a bit because we find the point that the first 22 verses of this chapter have been leading us to. We've been meant to follow him through this picture that he's creating. He's just given us uh, some examples of the height of human achievement, what we, are to, to, uh, what we are able to do in our own effort. We've been then led through the impossibility for us, even those as great as we, to find or purchase wisdom. And the problem is, as we talk about wisdom, we're talking about something that we desperately need, aren't we? This is something we must have if we are going to live well. And so if we, if we followed him in the first 22 verses, what he's done is he's brought us to a place of desperation. This is almost even a place of hopelessness. And then verse 23 Opens with a single statement that is supposed to produce a reaction in us. There was a time, I can remember it uh, quite powerfully. We were living back in Houston. So let me give you all of the pieces of this and see, um, see if you can feel the feeling that I was feeling. Okay, uh, We were living in Houston. I was driving my little Toyota Corolla around, and I had run out of Freon in this this thing, this was an old car that happened a few times to me. I wasn't going to get the whole system replaced, so I just kept trying to refill the Freon. And I remember one time in particular, it was out of Freon, and I was doing what I could. Do you have, do you have the sense of what I was dealing with? Rolling down the window in Houston does not solve any problems. It just, rem- it just reminds you of how big your problem really is in that kind of a case. And I remember... Um, and the other detail here is I'm pretty sure this was around the month of May because I remember school was wrapping up. All right, so Houston, May, no free on, And I remember it being in that state, that blessed state, and uh, an ad coming on the radio, and it was a Coca-Cola advertisement. Right? Um, but it didn't start with any words. All it started with was that sound that a Coke makes when you open it up. Psst. Now, do you, th- do you think that there was a Pavlov's dog sort of psychological response in me that took place at that time. All right, Here we are in verse 23. We have just been led through the greatest achievements of human effort. We've been given our diagnosis. We are incapable of locating wisdom. And by the way, you must have that wisdom if you're going to live. And then you hear these words. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. And if our heart has a mouth, it's beginning to water now, right? Because we've just been made aware of this great need, and we've been made aware of our deep, uh, hopeless situation, and then we hear this news. There is a way. God knows the way to wisdom. And all sorts of questions begin coming up in our thinking. Where is it? How, How does he know? You just told me that it cannot be found in the land of the living. How does God know the way? To this? And where, where am I to find it? And Job very graciously leads us through answers to those questions in the rest of this chapter. He deals first with the question of how? How does God know the way to wisdom? And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to get to the question we're all asking where? Where can I find it? But beginning in verse 24, he addresses this question of God. And here's where he starts to direct our attention rightly. Off of ourselves and our situation and on to the Lord God. Verse 24 begins with a little Hebrew conjunction, key. This is, we translate, because, for, since. What he's doing is he's just made a claim that God knows the way to wisdom. And now he's going to start to lay out evidence um, and and defend and explain uh, the, the truth behind that statement. That God knows the way to it. So in verse 24, he's going to lay out the truth behind this fact of God's knowledge of the way to wisdom. And then in verses 25 through 27, he's going to give us some examples of it played out. And it's when we get to those examples that he's going to be putting some very hard questions to us. But let's first look at verse 24. What we see him go to, he's just said, God knows the way to it. How does he explain that? For, verse 24, he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. What he's describing for us is a perfect perspective. God acts always everywhere through a perfect perspective of reality. His knowledge is perfect and therefore his perspective is perfect. How many, would, could we say all of them? How many of our foolish choices are made because we lack perspective. We decide, we act, and we're not acting on the basis of a complete picture of that situation, much less uh, the realities behind the, the situation. I've thought about this several times as I've played the game of chess. I don't know, I won't ask you if you like to play chess or not, but something, there's something unique to me about that game. And I think this is why it's so frustrating to lose. You get beat in chess. I can lose a lot of games and not deal with some stuff that I do deal with if I lose in chess. And the reason is because in chess, the whole time you're playing, every piece is visible to both of you. Right? We're not playing a game and you're hiding cards that I don't know what you've got and I have to make a decision based on partial knowledge. Every time I make a decision, I can see everything I need to see to make that decision. So when I lose, what does that mean? It means I made a move in which I failed to take into account the entire situation. Now that happens to me all of the time and it's part of what's so frustrating because I'll make a move here that ends the game for me and I'll know the reason that I made that mistake was because I failed to consider you know, the thing that was three inches to the side of it that I can touch right now. It's right there. I've seen it the whole time and I lost the game because I failed to take that into consideration. That's how... Far short we fall of maintaining a perfect perspective. Now compare that to God. He looks to the ends of the earth. Not only does his gaze extend that far so that there isn't anything that happens that he doesn't see. But as he looks at everything, he holds all of it in his perspective at once. He sees everything under the heavens all at the same time. This is a perfect perspective. And I hope you can tell it extends far beyond just the happenings on the planet itself. Right? What we're meant to see here is a God that has always acted as a result of a perfect knowledge and not just a perfect knowledge of the facts on earth but a perfect knowledge of His will. What He has always intended to do from the beginning of time. Uh, every potential consequence of every action. Just think of how Big the mind of God is for this to be the case for him to act on the basis of a perfect perspective he knows every outcome of everything he knows every potentiality and on the basis of all of that he acts this is a perfect perspective that he's describing to us and as we come into verse 25 this forces us to wrestle with some questions the first is this do you really believe that Do you really believe that this picture of God that is presented here as his perspective is described, it's presented throughout the Old and New Testament as he is held out to us, that this is who this God is. Do you really believe this picture of God, that this is the extent of God's knowledge and the extent of his action? But the second question that these verses coming up really put to us is this. Do you praise him for it? Do you praise him for being that God that operates always as a result of a perfect perspective? That perspective explains the wisdom that God knows. He always acts in wisdom. Do you praise him for it? And the way he's going to give us those questions is by setting up a few examples for us of how this perfect perspective plays out in our lives look with me at verse 25 when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder which is just another way to say a lightning bolt then he saw it and declared it he established it and searched it out Now, these verses do two things, and the second is far more important than the first. The first thing they do is they do give us tangible examples of the extent of his power. So how powerful is he? Well, uh, let's see this lived out. Verse 25, he gives the wind its weight and apportions waters by measure. He decides how strongly he'd like the wind to blow today. He decides how high the oceans should rise today. He makes those decisions and as he makes them he gives orders and they do it. He is the cause of these things. This is the extent of his power. Verse 26, God decrees when it's going to rain and when it rains how much it's going to rain. He decides when and where the lightning is going to strike. This is the level of authority and of knowledge that he acts in. And remember, these are examples of a perfect perspective. So the point here is As he decides these things, he is doing so with a perfect knowledge of his plan, of his will, of all the consequences. And we see these examples in the natural world, and we we should be pretty easily impressed with the power that's put on display in these examples. If you're not impressed with these, just talk to Craig Hinger about his experience with a lightning bolt in 2016. He'll lay out for you a good case for the extent of the power behind the one who led that lightning bolt to his body. And he will, I've heard him describe it. It sounds like a pretty powerful experience. So if you don't don't see this as a powerful example, you can talk to him. Uh, But we shouldn't just see these in, in the context of nature. Uh, Because these are examples that are very meaningful in the life of Job. Do you remember Job's story? Job chapter 1. In verse 16. While the servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven. And most commentators see that as a lightning storm producing this. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep And the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while the servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job, in chapter 28, looks for examples of the extent of God's direct control, and he chooses the weight of the wind and the way of the lightning bolt. We shouldn't fail to notice that. Very tangible examples indeed of the extent of the reach of our God. So these do that, but they do something else. They do a second thing, these examples do. It's just more important because it's actually the point that Job is making here. They don't just give examples. They tell us that when he does even these things. When he does all of these things. He is acting in wisdom. Look again at the, at the verses. He doesn't just tell us that they happen. He says in verse 25. When he does this. Verse 26. When he does this. And what's the rest of the statement? Verse 27. When he does these things. Verse 27. Then he saw it. And declared it. He established it and searched it out. What's it? It is wisdom. In fact, it's even a feminine pronoun to replace the feminine word wisdom. This is speaking about wisdom. He's saying, just imagine this. When God does these things, as he does them, what is he seeing? He is seeing wisdom set on display. As he does these things, he is declaring wisdom. Wisdom. Other translations translate that as assessed it or evaluated it. He is evaluating wisdom as he puts his works on display. He is establishing wisdom. That's very important for us to understand. What that makes clear is that as God acts, he is not acting, looking at a standard called wisdom that's external to himself, trying to do what he does and make sure that it matches up to this thing called wisdom. No, 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 no. No, wisdom is what God does. As he works, he is establishing wisdom itself. Wisdom is not something external to God that he tries to bow down to and obey. He establishes wisdom and he does it as he directs the lightning bolt and as he gives the wind its weight. He searches out wisdom with everything that he does. And this is the claim that's being put to us here. Do we believe this? Do we praise him for this? That every act of God is the result of his searching out wisdom. It's true about these things in nature. It's also true about the hair that fell out of you and into your shower this morning, according to Matthew 10.30. It's true of the bird that died in the field beside the church, according to Luke twelve. Six, this level of control and authority is even expressed in the Bible in in reference to the decisions of world leaders. There's something to think about this afternoon. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Bible is not shy about this. The question for us is, do we believe that as the sovereign one rolls out human history by his power, that he is always everywhere acting in wisdom. I heard something a while back. Maybe you've heard this before as well. If God would concede me his omnipotence for 24 hours, you would see what sorts of changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Now you think about... You think about that. You think about the sort of faith that, that is, is, is required to say something like that. If I, I trust. I do not see everything. I, I am the one in verses 1 through 11 who lives on this earth. I have no access to wisdom. So I don't think about things rightly. But... I believe that if I could see everything as God sees it, if I had his wisdom, I would leave things as they are. Now that leads us in a very difficult spot. Because our lives are full Our lives are full of situations that have been brought to us by God, the God of all wisdom, that we would change if we could, right? Everyone in here has situations that they are in that they could change if they could. These are things that God has for us. I know I would change it if I could, and yet God has me here. And there's certainly nothing in this that suggests that we should not or cannot try to change and improve our situations. We can and we should We are called to be be instruments of change in this world. We're called to fight against the effects of sin. We're called to pray to God, to ask him to change things that we are struggling with in our lives. Paul prayed three times that God would take that thorn from him. There's nothing wrong with that. The questions are deeper than that, that this raises for us. As I find myself in a place, I'm doing my best to walk according to the wisdom of God, I, I would change this as I could I'm, if, if, I, if I were able to and, and nothing is changing. Here are the questions that this presents for us to consider. Number one, how am I thinking about God's part in all of this? Am I thinking about His part in this? Does, does my thinking through this situation suggest that I understand God to have any part at all in what is going on here? Which if Job 28 is telling us the truth, God has sort of a big part in this situation that he's leading me through. How am I thinking about God's part in this? And if I am thinking about his part, do I find myself resenting him? Which would mean that in that moment, I am rejecting this idea that God is displaying wisdom in bringing this to me. You know, as believers, we all reject that at times. None of us think through these things perfectly. But these are the questions that are raised for us. A second question that this raises for us. As I walk through the situation that the Lord has me in, am I trying to see what God would have me learn while he has me here? the one who controls the timing of this, am I trying to see what he would have me to learn? You see, if this is not from him, if it's like the world believes and this is just random, well, then there's nothing to learn. There's no meaning behind this. There's nothing to be learned from it. But if his sovereignty extends to this level and his activities always represent those of a wise father who loves me, then that means there are always things that he would have me to be learning as I walk through the situation. But see, I can't do any of that if I'm not operating with a firm understanding that the gusts and gales of life got their weight from God. The floodwaters of my life were specifically apportioned by God who also loves me and is for me, not against me. He is for me, not against me. All of that, I think, is put very... Well, and very simply in verse 28, look there. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord. There are so many ways to express the the picture he is painting here as he calls us to the fear of the Lord. And he calls that for us wisdom wisdom. This is a love for God that is action-inducing. It is a perspective of God that sees him as ha- he has been presented in this chapter, as the one seated on the throne, acting on the basis of perfect wisdom and knowledge always, and then living in light of that truth. That is wisdom. It boils down in some of its simplest ways to the matter of trust. There are other words we could use that, are, that we understand a little bit better, I think. Trust. We're called here to trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You see the distinction that's being made there? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust him. Trust his word so that by faith, as you walk through the situations that he brings you through, even when your emotions aren't there, by faith, you call evil what he calls evil. How often do we find ourselves in undesirable places and the circumstances of that lead us to evil, lead us to fall into sin? No, he says, to turn away from evil is understanding. I'm meant to see him in this way, to trust him to a degree that I will even trust him when my emotions are not following. I will believe what his word says about what is evil and I will call it evil when he calls it evil. Trust him, trust his word. Love him. Love him with true love. The sort of love that Jesus describes in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's Jesus that puts those things together. This God of all wisdom, without whom we've seen we are hopelessly separated from wisdom. He is not remained separated from us. He has made himself known to us. And this is the hope of a people living in a land devoid of wisdom. He has not remained aloof from us. He's given us his word. He has sent the word to dwell among us and, and perfectly to reveal the God of wisdom to us. So the 1 Corinthians one thirty speaks of Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. Just think about that. He sent Jesus. And in his coming, he became for us wisdom from God. There's a command in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. It makes me chuckle a little bit in terms of how it's worded in our Bibles, but I think the force gets there. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And I've read that sometimes and thought, oh, well, thank you. That's... The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Calling us to a sense of urgency about this need that we have. Well, But wait a minute. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. Job 28 just told me, no matter where I go, I can never find it. I can't buy it. I can't find it. Eh. Well, on our own, our attempts to find wisdom are going to end in futility, the futility of Job 28. Blind men stumbling hopelessly in the dark. But that's not the full news of the Bible. The news of the gospel is that God in his mercy has sent wisdom to dwell among us. That's why we have hope. One of the most beautiful ways this is put is in Isaiah, I think. Isaiah 9, verse 2. Speaking of the coming Messiah. And it just says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's what his coming is. A people Trapped hopelessly in darkness. But not left there, because our God is a merciful, kind God, and He has sent us wisdom, and its name is Jesus. Have you come to the end, I wonder, of your search for wisdom in the things and experiences of this world? Has God done that for you yet? Have you been so humbled by the failed attempt to find wisdom that you're willing to accept the truth? The truth that to our prideful minds seems far too simple to be true, except that it is true. And that is the truth that in knowing the Lord, in trusting Christ Jesus, and in walking in his ways, that only in that do we find wisdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in your kindness, you have not left us to be confused about our estate. You have very powerfully and convincingly and yet very gently revealed to us the extent of our depravity. We see it in the scriptures. We see it in every failed attempt of our own to walk as wise men and women. It is your love for your children that brings us to the end of ourselves and causes us to cry out to you to hold up the empty hands of Romans 4, not trying to work, but rather being a people who believe in the God who justifies the ungodly, the God who has mercy on sinners by sending a son to take the penalty of those sins on himself. It's in him that we trust. Thank you for holding him up before us this morning as our wisdom. And I pray, Lord, for us all that we would cling to him. We would be thirsty for your word so we might know him better, know his ways better, so we could walk after him, trusting always in his finished work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.